As we were all saying the Lord's Prayer together, it was a real gift to hear you in a way that I hadn't heard all of us together for a while, because when we're outside, it kind of just floats away, but to hear the echo, the familiar echo inside this room was a, is a gift. So I'm grateful for all of that, and grateful for all of you who are online and able to join us that way, and all the gifts of technology. And I just want to say, Pastor Kevin, well done on moving up our indoor date. Because initially we were aiming for early November, and I don't think today would have worked outside had we not planned appropriately. So deeply grateful for your wisdom and ability to do weather.com and for the entire team to adapt and accelerate the process and to move indoors and the worship team and all of, all of you for able, being able to come and fill this space with your presence is a gift, which leads us to the beginning of our new series, Present. Um, this is the presence of God in practice. And what we're going to be doing in this series is actually trying to put into practice a little bit of our faith, our relationship with Jesus, um, and how we live this out in a variety of different ways. The first one we're talking about today is the practice of prayer, and we're going to actually do some of it in space. I have a aversion to talking about prayer and not actually doing the prayer. So we're going to be doing that together today. Don't get scared. It's going to be all right. Trust me. Because I'm going to start immediately with the fact that I understand a lot of us, maybe in this past time, this past few years, or the last 10 years, have been reconsidering or some people use the word deconstructing their practice of Christianity or just sort of trying to figure out what it is we believe and how we believe it. A lot of the ways in which we do that can feel incredibly disorienting. It can feel scary. It can feel like the ground is shifting underneath us and that we don't know where firm ground is anymore. And I think sometimes when we go through this practice of trying to ask these questions, we can feel like we're the first ones asking the questions. We're not. Um, or that we are in trouble because we're asking the questions or that we're very alone in asking those questions. And I just wanted to invite us all into the, the understanding that actually many of the questions we've been asking have been asked for thousands of years. These aren't new to our time but they can feel disorienting to us. Some of the things that we've wanted to sort of tear apart and refocus and look at in different ways have actually only existed in the practice of Christianity for the last 30 or 40 years. It's totally fine to get rid of that. Um, and there's things that we hold on to that have been since the beginning and are core and essential to our faith. And a lot of that we talked about in our last series, talking about those primary values that we share at Spark and how we ended in, re in Resurrection. When we go through these processes, particularly those of us who've maybe come from um, experiences prior where we felt like we engaged a bit more of our head than our heart, we start to swing a pendulum. Has anyone noticed that people do this? Where any organization or group or community, when we've found something very wrong with one thing, like, well, that was broken. I allowed myself to get too emotionally involved. Remember that one retreat slash concert slash speaker where I raised my hands. Oh, my goodness. What was I thinking? Right. And so we can feel I'm just joking. Of course, that's all very wonderful. But we if we had some experience there that we aren't comfortable with anymore, then we'll run to the other side. And we'll say, ah, this is the way it should be done. And we tend to very quickly leave some of those practices. 
And then those of us who were on the other side of, I grew up in a faith practice that felt very intellectual or was just ritual and liturgy, and I never felt emotionally connected at all, will go, well, that's not working. So I need to run to this other side where it's deeply emotional and deeply connected to my feelings. And if I'm not having a feeling and a sense of God's presence and a Holy Spirit moment, a Holy Spirit roller coaster kind of moment, then it's not Christianity. And so we find ourselves oftentimes making very abrupt and huge swings from one side to the other, rejecting either head or heart. And I know that amongst many of us at Spark, we do our best to try to love God with both of those elements of ourselves. But if I had to characterize Spark and somebody said, are you charismatic? I'd say, well, no. No, not. We have people in our church who are, but in our typical practice, it's not a very charismatic practice. Um, you might have some experiences going to a church that is m- where the room's much darker than it is here. Having been gone to a church like that recently, like dark lights, candles, lots of blue light up at the front. Um, you can't always see who's in the room. Maybe the music is a bit loud. And so you'd have that experience and then you don't like that anymore. So you run to this experience or you come here and you're like, don't like this anymore. And so you run to another experience. We all do those kinds of things. Spark tends to be a bit heady. Um, it's not a critique. It's just where we found God leading us as we ask questions and wrestle. I know this because there are oftentimes things that my beloved partner says in a sermon. And I think, what? What did he read this week? That's incredible. I should read his reading blog and I definitely need to catch up because there's things that roll around in the hearts and the minds of all of us here in Spark that maybe we haven't wrestled with or heard of previously. And so we find ourselves here. But the problem is that if we don't connect what we study with our actual practice of the presence of Jesus in our life, then we become a lot of earthly knowledge without any heavenly good sometimes. Um, One of the ways I think about this is that when we say the Lord's number one commandment, which Jesus was asked in Mark 12, as Patty mentioned, what's the number one commandment? And he quotes Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That word all is very interesting, isn't it? And we could get very like um, concerned that I only loved God with 95% of my heart today and it wasn't 100%, so now I feel bad about that. I don't think that's where we want to go with this. But I think what is interesting is that here in Deuteronomy, when God says, here's this commandment, love me with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, notice that there is an element that is missing that we actually have in our Gospels. What part isn't mentioned here? Love God with all your... In the gospel, it says mind too. And the reason why mind is not listed in Deuteronomy is because in the ancient Near Eastern, ancient Hebraic mindset, the heart is the seat of intellect. And they did not think of like the brain doing the thinking and the heart doing the feeling, but it was connected. In fact, when we look back at this, notice that there's three things mentioned, heart, soul, and strength, like might, strength, all of that, and all of it together. We feel oftentimes in our enlightenment, Western world, that we can love God with our heart, or we can love God with our head, but it's very hard to do both, and that those are separate entities. But in the ancient Near Eastern Israelite mindset, those things were all connected. 
And the might of it was to do all of it with every bit that we have. In fact, study being really one of the highest forms of worship, the ways that you showed God that you loved God. And interestingly, the word for nephesh that we use for soul actually also can mean throat or neck or breath and sometimes soul as well. Robert Alter actually suggests that it shouldn't mean soul ever. And it has more to do with this connective piece where you think like the breath of your life is there. And so there's been a lot of discussion as to why God suggests that the seat of intellect is in the heart, in the love, and why the nephesh is connecting to the neck. And maybe one picture is that when we love God with all of our heart and then all of our soul, that the heart and the neck then direct the head. So it kind of can sound a little bit like this, that the Bible often relates to the heart as a seat of intellect. Jesus does this too, by the way. I'll say he knew what they were thinking in their hearts, which is not how you and I would say it. I know what you're thinking in your head. But in his world, it was the seat of intellect. So the Bible refers to the heart as the seat of intellect. Why? Because what one knows is only truly knowledge when it penetrates the heart. The information that remains only head knowledge is separated from our heart and actions and remains only data. And until that information collected also is felt then with emotions, with that neck, with the nephesh and the soul, the knowledge is incomplete. So the neck, the soul, the nephesh tends to connect those two. So what I hope we at Spark can do in this series is start to connect All that we learn and think and wrestle and study with and doubt and believe, that we can take that head knowledge for for how we think about it and connect it with our heart and feel very much that that is the essence of our soul in the fullness of the whole and the all of which we love and seek to love God and practice God's presence in our life. All of it is welcome. Now, as we talk about being present with God— I think that there's some really beautiful language and ways in which we can connect this through the Bible. And God willing, in January, we'll talk, I'll teach Garden to Garden again. And we can talk about the ways in which the narrative pushes God's dwelling with us and being present with us from Genesis through Revelation. One of my favorite passages on this is actually from the book of Exodus, where God tells Moses in Exodus chapter 24 to be there. Here's the passage. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments I've written for their instructions. That part of practicing the presence of God in our life is to simply decide that we will be there. And this is not easy in our world. It's not easy to be in a place where we are anticipating the meeting of the divine in our lives, the meeting of God in that moment. It's hard to be there. I find it hard to carve out space where I can just go up on the mountain and be there. But we know that this is something that children long for in their relationships with adults. And so we as children of God can also long for in the relationship with our heavenly parent. Yeah? Children want us to be there. They want us to be with them. Come and be with me. Not on your phone while you're with me. 
right? Not working while you're with me, but be with me. Be there. And God knows that we as children of God need that same time. And so God has put right in our story from the beginning to the end times when places where God will be so that we can find God in our midst. I think that's encouraging and hopeful and exciting for me personally because I don't know that I always am willing to be there. And I also know, in fact, I know that I am not. I know that I am not always willing to be there. I know that I am not always willing to go and be in the space where I can anticipate the presence of God. That's hard for me. Is that what you want your pastor to tell you, by the way? That's really hard sometimes. Lots of times. The other thing that I get really encouraged about when I think about this is the invitation to be with him. And I, it's this passage in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 that continues to resonate with me when I think of being with God being present. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. He's choosing the 12 disciples and they came to him and he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So there is a first, a practice of being present with God before we are sent out. We often flip that or we have two seconds of the present with God and then we go. Now, I know that some of us may have been in contexts where things like quiet time um, felt like a religious obligation and you were told that you were going to be like a bad Christian or you wouldn't be able to follow Jesus well if you didn't have your QT with God in the morning. I did not grow up in that context. I didn't grow up with the context of having a personal conversation like this with Jesus on a regular basis. It was more just like you just talk to God along the road. You just kind of did it. I want to remove any religious obligation from this and instead suggest that this is a gift. And when it's easy, it's really easy and beautiful, isn't it? And I think for me, the places and times when being present with God or making myself available for God's presence, when it's easy is when I can like be in the redwood forest. If I can just get to a redwood forest, because I grew up here in Northern California, if I can get to one and lay down on the floor of the forest, and Kevin will testify because we went to a redwood grove a few times this summer. And my first is just to run in and try to lay down as quickly as possible on the floor of the forest. I don't put anything down. I don't try to like keep the pine needles. I just want to lay down and feel the warmth of the earth in the midst of the cool of the trees and watch them reach up to God. And that's when it's easy for me to sense God's presence. Like if, if you want me to close my eyes and picture a color that makes me feel close to God, it is the color of the new growth on the edge of those redwood trees that the sun shines through. I can, tell, I can take any of you directly to it and to like, we'll just go to Santa Cruz. I'll take you immediately to the color and the place where I sense God's presence. And what I love to do there is I love to read Psalms to the trees. And you think I'm crazy, but you should go do it sometime because it's awesome. And it is easy for me in those places to sense God's presence and to feel like I am there with God in that moment present. Now, I don't live in a redwood grove, and so I imagine that if I had it daily on a daily basis, this would somehow wear thin, and I would forget God's presence. I would just walk through it and forget that I was sitting in the midst of a cathedral. But because it's not a daily experience in my life yet, I'll definitely retire to the redwood someday, um, 
Because of that, it's very special, isn't it? And I bet if I asked each one of you, when was a time when you felt close to God, when you felt connected with God, where, where the presence of Jesus was deeply and intimately felt in your life, that you could probably tell me of similar types of experiences or colors or places or moments. And I think that those moments kind of take us through into the hard ones sometimes too, right? I, several years ago, took a course with Frank Rogers and Mark Iaconelli. Uh, Frank is the author of this fantastic, small, quick, but dense and difficult book called Compassion and Practice, Practicing the Way of Jesus. And in this spiritual direction course, um, over these several months, Frank invited us to practice different prayers and um, exercises and mindfulness and imagination, inviting Jesus into that presence. Now, when I signed up to do this, I was in a season of my life when it was so hard. So hard to sense God's presence. Now, if anybody here had come and said, do you believe Jesus loves me? I'd be, oh, yes, absolutely. Do you believe Jesus can show up for me? Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm sorry, he's just not doing that for me right now, but I totally believe he'll do it for you. And I felt very forgotten by God and a bit angry. And it was hard. It was really hard to be in that space. And when Frank invited us to sort of close our eyes and picture, he said, like, a beautiful living room with, like, a roaring fireplace and that you're sitting on the couch and and Jesus is there with you and then try to notice everything else that is in the room and have a radical welcome. So it was okay to say anxiety is here and fear is here and anger is here and all these things. And so I did that practice. But for me, the the beautiful living room with the couch and the roaring fireplace shifted almost immediately in my imagination to a giant sinkhole out in front of my house that I had roped off with big, huge construction cones and markers to say, listen, don't come here. I know Jesus is real and I know he's with me, but this sinkhole sucks And it's just a massive amount of grief and loss in my life. And I can't make it go away. And Jesus can't make it go away. And it's just going to be here. So just walk around it and don't talk to me about it. Because if you do, I will cry. So I just was living a lot of my life like that. And Frank invited us in this spiritual direction practice to invite Jesus to come and love the thing that was in our midst that was sort of taking over. And so in the practice, I imagined Jesus bringing like, because I was no longer in the cute, cozy living room of the spiritual retreat center with the, I imagined Jesus taking this big, warm blanket and just giving the sinkhole a giant hug. And at that moment, the sinkhole, by the way, you guys, it's still out in front of my house. It's not, it didn't go away. Nothing changed. Those losses and those griefs were still there. But Jesus loves the sinkhole. And because Jesus compassionately loved the sinkhole and said, I'm so sorry, sinkhole, and this must hurt, and this must be very difficult, and I care that you are hurting, it became okay. And practicing the presence of Jesus became a bit more possible in my life in ways that it wasn't before that moment. But it was still hard. Um, They gave us an assignment that I was so mad about for a long time. And I waited until I had, we had, it was like an an actual course I took where you had to turn in your journals and your thoughts and do the spiritual direction, right? 
and they gave us an assignment to go on a date with God. I was like, oh my goodness, Christians are so weird. So I immediately was, I'm immediately uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable with all of this, all of this, like go on a date with God. I was like, I don't want, first of all, I'm mad at God. Did I tell you about the big sinkhole? Also, this is weird, and I don't think Christians should be talking this way. I get all weird about it. I'm not saying, if it works for you, that's great, by the way. I just, for me, it was like super uncomfortable. So I waited till the very last, like, hour almost when I had to turn in this assignment. And I sat down and I was like, so, so ridiculous, so dumb. I just write and so I'm writing the thing, and as I start to write the thing, now I'm, the assignment was to actually go and have a date with God, and then come back and report on it. Here's how I filled out my part of the assignment. I don't want to go on a date with God. I'm going to tell you why I don't want to go on a date with God. I think this is ridiculous. I don't think we should anthropomorphize God in this romantic way. What do you do? Like, I was, like, so irritated about it. I had my whole thing. And as I was writing it, I realized that the reason why I didn't want to go on a date with God, I, I think there's some reasoned debate here, by the way, about whether this is good, helpful language for everybody. But the reason why was because I actually did not think that God would show up. I was at the place where I was like, my date with God will come into this date night experience. Like it's not going to be good. And as I started writing, I realized that either my anticipation was that either the date was going to be me sitting for a very long time at the bar waiting, embarrassed and telling other people like, are you here alone? No, no, I'm, I'm sure he's coming. Um, it's just running late, you know, taking care of the things for all the other people. And that I would have to make excuses for the reasons why I was sitting there alone all night. Or that God would show up in this moment in this presence I carved out for. And it would be that icy silence because there's problems. Have you been on those dates? They're awful, right? And you're like, Mm-hmm. And then everybody can tell that it's awkward and that you have a thing. And then you have to get in the same car and drive home together. And one of you's hugging. I've heard about this, by the way. It's nothing in my life. Um, but you like hug one side of the door the whole time. You just like really can't wait till it's over. And I anticipated one of those two things to happen. Once I was present enough to recognize that the sinkhole was there, that I felt abandoned or that I was mad and angry and I felt like it was broken and that I wasn't, then even though it was hard, it was helpful. And the hard thing became not easy, but in a way that it moved. I just want you to know that as we talk about practicing the presence of God, if it's easy for you, that's lovely. Well done, you. Fantastic. Hopefully we've all had those moments. And if it's not easy right now, that's okay too. It's totally fine. And also as we practice the presence of Jesus in our lives, sometimes it's very lonely. It can be very lonely to go up and try to answer that call of sitting on the mountain and just being there and feeling like nobody has shown up. And I think that the lonely moments are also welcomed that those moments are okay. When we read Psalm 22, the Psalm, of course, that Jesus also cried out in one of his lonely moments on the cross. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. Lonely moments, dark moments of the soul, those are part of our story and they're part 
of the entirety of our story. And those are accepted and welcome and, dare I say, expected. When we start to look through the life of some of our biblical heroes, we can think, man, I wish I could just hang out with God like Moses did, or I wish I could just hang out with God like Deborah or Abraham or whomever. When you go and you look, what is recorded over the lifespan of 120 years of Moses is a handful of conversations and then a lot of hard moments. The same with Abraham, a handful of moments and a lot of time of silence in between. The loneliness is not going to be surprising. You should expect it. It's okay. It's part of our process here. And to that end, I'd like to say, I think then that we can embrace the mystery. We can embrace the mystery of God. Now, we don't do this very well in Western North American Christianity. We like to know all the things, and we like to be able to explain all the things. Like, I can picture somebody saying, well, the reason why you are having a lonely moment with God is this, right? Or the reason why you had a dark night of soul is this. If only you would do these things, right? I will preach a sermon, three ways to get out of loneliness with God, right? And then you go do those three things, and then we fix it. In the Eastern church, there is a significant embrace of mystery, it's, practice, it's part of the practice. In fact, the seven sacraments in the Orthodox Church are called the holy mysteries. Isn't that so cool? Because, you guys, taking communion is a mystery. Baptism, there's something divinely mysterious about this, that, that God will always be bigger than our understanding of God, and that is okay. We can embrace the mystery. And the Bible gives voice to this too. There are many times in the Bible where somebody that is our hero of biblical faith and faithfulness will say, I did not know. Jacob says this in wrestling, right? Jacob says, when I awoke, when he, Jacob awoke from sleep in Genesis 28. When Jacob awoke from sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He didn't know God was there. It was something he came to understand later. Moses has a similar experience on Mount Sinai. He wants, he's talking to God. He wants to see God face to face. Panim al panim. Like, I want to see your face, God, face to face. And God's like, no way. You can't do that. But I'll push you into the cleft of the rock. And so when the Lord saw that he had gone over to, oh, sorry. That's the other part I want to tell you. This is the other verse, Exodus 3. When Moses shows up at the burning bush, Moses is like, has to take off his sandals because the place where he is is holy ground and he didn't know it. And then in this passage, the one I wanted to show you in Exodus 33, when God says he wants to see God, God's like, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, my after, but you will not, my face must not be seen. That sometimes when we are with God in these moments, we only see God in the after. And sometimes the lonely and the dark night, nights of the soul and the difficult moments where we set up the construction zone and say, just stay away from this big hurt and pain. Sometimes we can only see the faithfulness of Jesus in the after. And that is a mystery too, isn't it? Now, as we 
do these things, Christianity, in our practice of over 2,000 years, church fathers and mothers have put forth different tools in our toolbox. And one is the examine prayer, which you can do at the end of the day. And as you walk out today, and we can also make these available online for all of our online Zoomers, um, there will be just a small handout of a prayer process that you and I can think through towards the end of our day, the examine prayer, a way to sort of try to see God in the after of the day, a looking back of the day and trying to remember where, where did you show up today, God? Oh, it was in the coffee shop when I had that interaction or it was at work when, and, and we can do that prayer that examines God in the after of the day. And there's another prayer that we're going to do now, a prayer practice called Lexio Divina. And this means the divine word. And this prayer practice is one that I deeply love and have found connection with Christ through. And if it's new to you, that's totally fine. And if it's one you've done before, that's okay too. Uh, We're going to practice the practice now. And we're going to start with first centering ourselves with a song. Jesus, we stand here practicing our presence with you, trusting you are present with us, that you long to be with us. Open our heart and our mind as we now listen to your word, asking you to hear the divine reading of your word, Jesus, in this place and to place ourselves in the story. Help us to resonate with the passage or the moment in this story that you would like us to resonate with. Breathe your spirit into us and through this room, through the recitation of your word. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, crowd behind, They took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Oh, mm-hmm.
He said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? How is Jesus speaking to you? through this passage right now? What is sticking out to you? What line, what word, what moment? Where do you find yourself in the story? What stands out? What image comes to mind? How might Jesus be speaking to you and to me here in this moment? What's our first reaction to this passage? And how might we respond to this passage in our life? Just sit with this for a moment, this passage. You can use the text as a prayer book. Use the story as a prayer. Where is Jesus right now with you and with me? in this passage.
for giving us a space and a protected space today where we could come together and practice being with you. Jesus, we bless you for this community and this church, for this opportunity to be here, to be dry, to hear the storm and the wind and the rain, to sense your presence. For those of us here in our community at Spark who are feeling lonely, who can only hope to embrace mystery, who feel distant, abandoned, or unsure of you. Jesus, we ask that you would make us aware of your presence, of your love. That you would renew us through the power of your Holy Spirit and that we would be drawn closer to you and to one another. Jesus, for those of us in this room for whom your presence feels as close as a friend. We bless you, God, for these strong moments and ask that you would strengthen us for the valleys we know that will come. And we ask that as we feel close and connected to you, Jesus, that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear the need and the heartbreak of our neighbor. Jesus, we bless you for being with us and present with us. And we ask that you would renew a hope and a heart in each one of us that longs to be with you, to just be with you. We ask that you give us the hope and the faith to make these practices part of our life. And as we turn to the divine mystery of this beautiful table upon which you continue to bring us the symbolism of your sacrifice, we ask that you would meet us here at this table as well. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the this as often as you drink and remember of me. All are